This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. We're sitting here today at Fort Leavenworth with two professors from the Department of Military History. Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Department of Military History, Mark Gurgis, and Assistant Professor, Jonathan Abel. Today the topic is Napoleon. Napoleon's impact in the world, his military career, and current interest in Napoleon on the globe today. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. morning. So Napoleon is obviously a very large subject. We could spend a lot of time talking about the ins and outs, uh, but why don't you briefly begin by just letting our audience know who Napoleon was and how did he rise to such prominence? All right, well, Napoleon was a uh, uh, minor nobility, a uh, father of a lawyer uh, in Corsica, uh, bought by France just the year per, uh, prior, um, and uh, not the first son. Uh, because of his father's position, he's able to go uh, to school. Both him and his brothers are able to go to school in France, uh, where he will uh, learn his bit of French with a heavy Italian accent. Um, and then uh, at the time of the revolution comes, he's a, uh, a young lieutenant of artillery um, that is going to be in the, the, the Royal Army and uh, really seeing much of the French Revolution uh, either on Corsica during big breaks in service where he's on leave, uh, settling family affairs, or um, in France himself. Yeah, and, and he's he is very much an outsider <coughs> to the French system. This is a point that a, a lot of people will comment on at the time, and then later it becomes part of the historiography. You know, as Mark said, he does have a heavy Italian accent. He never spoke or wrote French properly, um, doing air quotes. And, and he comes into the system and wants to be part of it. He's an ardent Jacobin. He tries to do this Jacobin thing in Corsica. Uh, actually fails. People tend to forget he was a failure early in his career. And then he go back, goes back to the Metropole. He gets wrapped up in, in the purges, almost gets purged himself, then um, ends up in the kind of the, the Bureau Topographique, which is kind of a prototypical French staff. Uh, and then he goes on to command... Um, First, you know, before that, he, he had been in charge of an operation to clear the British out of the port city of Toulon. But then later, in 1796, really because of political connections, uh, through his mentor, a guy named Baja, uh, he's sent to command the Army of Italy. And that's where we really see Napoleon. Um, he, he goes from being citizen Bonaparte to Napoleon. Um, and there he, he basically wins the war that's been raging for several years. Uh, then he, he trapeses off to Egypt, comes back and overthrows the French government, then um, kind of sorts out a lot of the mess of the revolution, uh, depending on your views of, of totalitarian politics, either good or bad. Um, 1804 crowns himself emperor, has this whole series of wars, uh, at that point the third through, if you want to call it the seventh coalition war, um, between 1805 and 1815, and then he is... Uh, ultimately exiled to the island of St. Helena, which um, John Quincy Adams memorably called the eagle chained to his rock. 
where he died in 1821, uh, which we are you know, bicentenary of his death. That's a great line from Quincy Adams. Uh, so there's a, a, an awful lot going on here, a lot to unpack. Both of you mentioned the French Revolution, the role of the Jacobins. Um, one thing you hear about Napoleon is that in many ways he was the beneficiary of the French Revolution. Could you comment a little bit more about how he is uh, tied into those revolutionary elements and how they helped shape his career? Yeah, I, I can start with that. So for one, it's hard to say what Napoleon's ideology was. Um, I think the one thing we can say for sure about Napoleon is he liked order. He liked things to be in control. Beyond that, he was very good at saying that he liked certain ideologies when they suited him. So he memorably said if he had to pick a religion, he'd be a Muslim, but he was in Egypt when he said that. So it's, it's hard to say what he truly believed. Um, but I think a lot of people would agree that he seemed to be an ardent Jacobin in the early 1790s. Uh, whether that was his path to power, to success, or because he truly believed it is hard to understand. He was a young man, he was a very young man. He uh, was born in 1769, so he's, you know, early 1790s, he's still very young. So, you know, young men are, are want to kind of latch on to ideologies, whether they take them someplace or just to, to you know, to have meaning. Um, but the, the, the ideological influence is that the French Revolution cleared the decks for him. It swept away a lot of the detritus of, of what Tocqueville called the old regime, uh, the tax system, the noble system, a lot of the barriers to change. So when Napoleon then came in later, he was able to change a lot of that without having to worry about entrenched interests because that had already been done for him. And, and people tend to forget that. People tend to forget that Napoleon did not just appear as this apotheosis of the god of war or government or whatever. whatever. Um, he, he was very fortunate to live when he did. If the revolution hadn't happened, you know, Captain Napoleon would have had a quiet career and, you know, probably in the Alps, right? So from the, from the kind of structural side, in the, in the government, that's, that's the great gift of the revolution for him. And, and now that goes back into his, we were talking earlier about the 1796 campaign and, and then uh, uh, later. Um, you know, as Napoleon's going with the military victories, he's organizing civil society. He's setting up um, uh, allied uh, satellite governments. Um, he is, uh, you know, he's, he's taking on political questions on ending wars uh, with Austria uh, that are outside his purview really as a general. Uh, but you see that um, that he's kind of putting those two together, and I think as we get later on in talking about his legacy, um, I'd argue his legacy is m more on the civil uh, and governmental side than it is on the military side. Uh, but we can save that discussion uh, for later in talking about what he's known for. Yeah, and and on that point. Uh, you have to understand where the revolution was when Napoleon got true power in 1796. We'd been through several phases. The reign of terror is in the rearview mirror, but people don't know that. They think it might come back. And the government is essentially a kleptocracy. The directory uh, that was the government from 1794 to 1799 is a group of people who are basically taking advantage of the situation. And no one more so than his great mentor, Baha. Baha was, I mean, he looted the French state for everything he could. Um, before he's kind of put out to pasture. And, and so when these generals, and it's not just Napoleon doing this, when, when, the, when the generals are in the low countries, in Germany, in Italy, 
they're looking back at Paris and they're seeing a government that just doesn't function. We, we might even call that a failed state, at least at the kind of national level. And so for Napoleon to do this, it wasn't him just taking power and exerting this kind of totalitarian control that a lot of people accuse him of. He was a totalitarian, but it wasn't without cause. Now, we can debate whether it was right or not, but he, there was a cause. There was a very proximate cause, which was the abject failure of the government in Paris. And everybody knew it. There was no one invested in the success of the directory. It was just the best they had. And I think going back, Napoleon's 26 when he takes command in Italy, and he is looked at as a political appointee. He hasn't um, grown his chops to really earn that job. Uh, it's because his relationship uh, with the directory, uh, with the planning staff. And so when he comes down, he has generals that are 10 years older than him that have been campaigning for years um, who look at him as just a political appointee. And I think that that key part of the 1796 campaign where he wins them over by his actions fighting against the Piedmontese and then against the uh, the Austrians is really a, a critical part of building that piece because it's not uh, I mean he's he, he's organized he's able to break the stalemate uh, that's gone down the um, in the, the Maritime Alps and actually get into northern Italy um, that France has, has butted its head up against for, for campaign after campaign. And that really starts to build that mythology uh, upon him because of those uh, battlefield successes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and speaking of the battlefield success, the other great benefit Napoleon had from the revolution was he inherited a military. He didn't create one. That's probably one of the most <laughs> pernicious myths about him. Um, that he, he received the benefit of years of combat and winnowing. So the French Revolution first goes to war in 1792, and that kind of spins into the first coalition war, which is not resolved until um, technically 1797. And that enabled the French to build an army that was a, a hybrid of the old system, disciplined, professional soldiers, paid soldiers, these levies and later conscripts once we get the Jordan law in 1798 and it also churns the NCO and officer corps uh, the it's not all of the bad ones are gone but the people who are in their jobs in the French army by 1796 even but especially by the time Napoleon seizes power in 1799 they are very experienced they know what they're doing they have operationally articulated mobile formations that can and do win huge battles. Um, and, and even away from Napoleon, um, the War of the Second Coalition ended when a general named Moreau won a battle, not Napoleon. We, we tend to associate Marengo with the end of that war, but it wasn't Marengo, it was, was Hohenlinden. And so it's not just him, it's this system that's feeding him that he then takes and makes even better. He tweaks it. He doesn't create it. You know, an interesting thing, talking about that, that period when the revolution comes, and particularly with the reign of terror, um, typical just social services like the school systems cease to function. And so you have these large number of highly motivated volunteers who go into the army um, who don't get any schooling for six, eight years. And uh, one of the issues Napoleon's going to have once he actually becomes first consul um, is again systemizing the the officer corps and the army and he's going to have to retire or reduce almost a third of his officers because even though they're highly motivated and experienced 
they can't read and write and so they have no potential or very limited potential for higher advancement um, and it goes back to when you look at Napoleon look at his lifestyle we can talk later on about how he just organizes his daily routine it's all about systems and it's about getting him information at the proper time to let him mull it over and to then issue um, either commands or proclamations or whatever and systemizing it across all the different um, facets he touches so that information comes to him when he needs it uh, and is available for him. So that's very interesting. The image you're sketching here, both of you, seems to be one of a, a very savvy individual who's negotiating different tides of ideology, politics, military change, winning people over, um, organizing information, knowing what he has and what he can do. Uh, but then, Professor Abel, you point out he does inherit this military um, that gives him the tools to do these things he's going to go become famous for. So let's transition a little bit to that military then, I suppose. Uh, Professor Gurgis, you already talked about the, the winning over of the generals um, and, um, and these important people who knew what they had, knew the system, up to the point of Napoleon taking charge. It's often said that during his uh, period of his rise to power and his great victories, there were no major technological changes in warfare. They're still using the same weapons that had been used decades before. So what is it about Napoleon when he takes over this military and makes these changes after winning over these officers? What does he do to enable the victories that are coming down the road? Sounds like a Guy Bear question to me. <laughs> so the, the, <laughs> you're right in that there are no major technological changes. Now let's understand what that means. That's not to say there's no technical advancement, right? So uh, early 18th century, we invent the socket bayonet, more like perfect it. Um, and then, so we, we don't need pikes anymore, right? We're thinning formations. Later in the century, we get the, the Dutch model of drilling the bore out. Uh, of, of a cannon which makes it much more reliable and much more accurate. We've got the Gribovall system which, which uses the kind of um, Swedish-Prussian model to transition siege artillery to field artillery. But those are small changes. They're not like the invention of gunpowder, which is a major technological change. There are right? also changes though that are 50, sometimes 50, 60, 70 years before right. the revolution. So right. they are well integrated all across Europe that everyone has gotten to those, yes. those aspects. And and this is this is not just the Napoleonic period where there's no major change. This is across essentially 150 years, right? So basically from the early 18th century or even further back to the mid-19th century, there's no major changes. And so this is one of the very rare instances in, in modern-ish military history where you have significant change that doesn't really have to do with technology. And, and that allows us to really see how change can take place in an organization and in building these systems that lets us really see how you do that without a technological change. One of the mistakes we make as Americans is we associate progress with technology, which makes sense coming from the 20th century, but that's, they're not always the same. But a lot of these organizational changes are coming out at the end of the American Revolutionary War. Um, in France, well, you actually, even going back to the, the Seven Years' War and looking at French performance and writing about it, and many of them are just theoretical. Uh, de Broglie, uh, Guibert to a lesser degree, but they're, they're theoretical. They are that French Enlightenment thought of organizing and how to do it. And what the revolution does is it kind of tears away a lot of the, we've always done it like that. 
Um, well, I often talk to my students, um, you don't hear second lieutenants saying, we can't try this. You know, they'll, they'll do anything because they don't know any better. And, and the French Revolution, with so many senior officers leaving um, or being replaced, it allows those ideas that are percolating up to be tried on the battlefield. Um, and so organizational changes, um, the things that had to be done, the Demi Brigades, um, the division structure that's then turned into core structure, permanent staffs, uh, or all those organizational changes that makes an a army, regardless of Napoleon, but it makes an army that is much more resilient, able to take casualties, um, to move dispersed um, fight, which means it can move quicker. Um, it doesn't need the uh, baggage trains uh, that the ancien regime armies does. All those things means the army can move faster. Um, and then when you put the revolution on board and particularly reach side, you kind of take away the ability to negotiate. It becomes more total war. You have to go for a decisive victory because of the levy on mass, because of the motivation. You don't have to worry so much about uh, casualties. Uh, you don't have to worry about the motivation of the soldiers. They're committed. They're bought in. And all those things are out there, and they're being used by a number of officers, uh, general officers, uh, in late 1790s who are successful. Napoleon just happens to be at the right place at the right time and have a brother who's at the right place to help him. Uh, so in uh, 1799, he takes power at the 18th Brumaire. Yeah, and, and some of the details on some of the changes that Mark talked about. So Seven Years' War, which is the last war France fights before the Revolution, it, it had forces in North America, but those, those were considered secondary to the French. It takes hours to deploy an army. You basically deploy an army on two lines. You, you set up the, the deployment order when you're in camp before you even march to the battlefield because that's the way the mechanics work. Nobody knows how to handle an army. The commander is, he might be a dedicated professional, but he's probably also uh, the king's relative and a favorite of the king's mistress. That's generally how um, generals were promoted in, in the old regime. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how Louis XIV's generals got their positions. So it depends on the quality of the person. Um, but, but what happens after the Seven Years' War, as Mark alluded to, is theorists, uh, including Hubert, start looking at this and saying, we can't do this anymore. We have to be faster. We have to do this in a way that allows us to move on the battlefield instead of just line up and shoot at each other. Uh, so that's when they start looking at higher echelon formation. So the highest, the highest permanent unit in the French army in most of the old regime is the regiment. And regiments are not really tactical units. Uh, they're, they're administrative units. So then in uh, 1787, the war ministry puts together a series of reforms that creates formal brigades and divisions. Now, as Mark said, these are never implemented because there's not a war. And one of the dirty little secrets of military reform is you need a war to test it. You can't just do it. Uh, and sometimes the war is a good war. Uh, so Desert Storm for the United States is proof of concept of a lot of changes. But, but for the revolutionaries, add in the chaos of the revolution. Uh, and one of the things the revolution did is it cut the head off the officer corps, um, sometimes literally. But also because a lot of them just simply left. They immigrated. Um, so it's no longer the king's relative who's in command of the army, even before the king is dethroned. Uh, now it's, it's merit, but who merits? And that's a big question throughout the revolutionary Napoleonic period. Well, less so with Napoleon, because he decides merit. But these revolutionaries are trying to figure out how to use these units, and it's a process of trial and error. And the great benefit they have, uh, and this is kind of the, the, the TCW Blanding thesis, is 
it's it's great to experiment when you have essentially an unlimited source of manpower. Um, that's greatly simplifying the idea, but the Le'Veon Moss and then later the Jordan Law gives the French the ability to put more men in the field so they can afford to lose a division here or there, or an army here or there, and regenerate it. And so they're, you know, combine that with this revolutionary idea of, of, of initiative and individualism, and you can see how this is a, a ripe breeding ground for change. So the revolutionaries perfect all this stuff. They get the division system down. Um, they rely increasingly on pillage, on just taking what they need from the lands where they are, especially once they move outside of France. But even in France, we tend to forget that. Uh, revolutionary armies kind of took wherever they went. Um, but they did get supply from the rear. It's only when the government starts to break down that that's really no longer a possibility. And at a certain point, the armies are funding the government in Paris. And that's when you start to get these army generals, whether it be a Napoleon or a Pichegru or even an Augereau, who look back and say, we are the government, so why are we not the government? And as Mark pointed out, it, you know, Napoleon is, is in the right place at the right time at the coup of 18 Brumaire in 1799. He's, he, he masterminded it, but it could have been someone else. And in fact, the, the people who set it up, like the Abbe Cies, were looking for somebody They, they asked first. a couple of other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, there, as I mentioned, Pichegru, Hoche, there's, there's others. Bernadotte, man. Yeah. So what Napoleon does then is he comes in and he says, all right, first, we've got to settle the chaos of the revolution. We need to tamp down all of the excesses. And he does a lot of that. He issues a new civil code. He gets an agreement with the church, which people underestimate. People tend to think of the French Revolution as this great time of modern, you know, kind of agnostic or even atheistic sentiment. But the French people cared about their church. So he gets this concordat with the pope. That helps a lot, uh, the kind of the internal unrest. Uh, he seems to be a man of faith, although as we talked about, we're never really sure with him. Uh, so that kind of quiets the French people. He brings peace, uh, really the only period of peace between 1792 and, and 1814 was the period right after Napoleon seized power, basically between 1802 and 1805. Um, and then he starts to reform the state alongside the army. So he puts this new civil code in place, he starts building functional institutions, functional systems for the state. And that's everything from sorting out how the state negotiates with the Catholic Church, big picture, to how justices of the peace interact with citizens. It's a very small picture. And Napoleon was concerned with all this. You see it in his correspondence. Yeah, I think that 36 months after 18th Brumaire is probably the most significant piece of, of, of civil and military reforms that really create the legacy of Napoleon because so many of those things, you mentioned the civil code very quickly. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. The civil code is still in effect um, in Europe today. Um, and Napoleon takes part in about a third of the actual arguments and, and puts his stamp and, and really puts a, a much of his ideas into the civil code, even though he's not a trained lawyer, um, but he's arguing the lawyer, lawyers and able to put his stamp because it He's using common sense. He's using enlightenment uh, rationale, the core comps, the, the prefects, the, the reorganizing of the district, so much of the departments in France, so much of the current administrative structure of France today was put in place in that 36 months. Uh, Saint-Cyr, the, uh, the, the, the military schools, uh, all those aspects he puts in place. And part of that is systematizing the ability of the state to support the army, um, to having the citizen who is a, you know, built in that national um, code and civil code 
uh, piece. And uh, if you go to his, uh, uh, you go to his tomb in Les Invalides today, and uh, it has uh, around the actual sarcophagus, it has his victories, but then it has these huge bas relief uh, statues all around that shows, you know, the civil code and the justice and the the concordat and all his his pillars, uh, as they call it. Um, that establishes the French state mm -hmm. uh, to this day. And one of the other things that's important about Napoleon's early career, so we're talking pre-1810 or so, he's actually a really good evaluator of talent. Uh, that will change later. We'll talk about his fall. But he surrounds himself with people, some of whom are already there, but many of whom he kind of plucks from obscurity. Uh, so Mark mentioned the, the Code Napoleon. That's largely the work of a guy named Cambasser, who is Napoleon's chief kind of administrator. And he's one of the, the many people who's very loyal to Napoleon, doesn't seem to have any ambition for himself. And he's the one who helps run the state. Uh, the same is true of Clark, who is his minister of war for most of the time he's in power. Uh, the, probably the best example of that is, is a memorable story from um, The Iron Marshal by Jerry Gallagher. Uh, he, he reaches down and grabs this cavalry commander named Davu, who has never held a command, and no one can figure out why. They have no connections. Davu's a former noble, so he's kind of anathema to the revolution. But they're in Egypt together, and in 1804, Napoleon decides, hey, Davu, you're now a marshal. And Davu, of course, turns out to be one of his best, if not his best, marshals. Um, so early in his career, Napoleon's very good at identifying who can help him. Whether it's a Bertier as his chief of staff, whether it's a Clark or a Cambasser, whether it's one of his enemies, like Fouché or Talleyrand, people he keeps around because he knows they do their job very well, although he only tolerates Talleyrand for so long. Um, and so he's good at building these systems together. And he does the same thing in the army. He pulls the army together in that, in that period of peace that Mark talked about at, at Bologna on the French coast. And he... he puts them, he forges them into his Grand Armée in this about 18-month period, ostensibly to invade England, but of course that never happens. And so he takes that division system and builds the Corps d'Armée, <coughs> this, this really first operational level, although we can debate that, um, all-arms formation, not a combined arms formation, an all-arms formation. Uh, it's got a staff, it's got you know engineers, it's got pontoons, that kind of stuff, and that's new. And the training at Bologna is, is, is so, it, it looks modern. I mean, if you look at a week-long schedule, they've got a day where it's going to be brigade level, then a day of division level, then a day of core level, and they build sequentially and do all these various aspects. So by 1805, he has this magnificently trained army sitting on the coast uh, ready to invade. Mm -hmm. And he also, uh, he invents battlefield medicine. We, we tend to forget that. So prior to Napoleon, basically, you didn't deal with wounded until after the battle. And you can imagine what that was like with you know 18th century medicine. Um, and the French had long been reckoned to have the best hospital service in Europe, but that was, that was almost a euphemism. Um, but Napoleon has another, uh, another great talent who works for a guy named Larry, who, who has the brilliant idea to put wounded people on carts in the middle of the battle. So Larry is the first, he's the founder of battlefield medicine. But not just carts though, they have special, they have special uh, springs to, to carry the wounded a little bit more carefully, they have water on board, mm -hmm. they have these uh, these things called verst wagons which they put doctors on there but then they have their medicine kits underneath that fold out and so they ride on it, it almost looks like a saddle mm -hmm. with three or four doctors on it. I mean so the, the medicine system is, is far advanced 
of what anyone else has. Um, we had a, a master instructor in our department a couple years ago who broke his foot, and it was a Liz Frank uh, fracture, which of course is a French surgeon uh, during the Russian campaign, figures out how to amputate the foot without actually going through any of the bones, and it's called a Liz Frank. He's, he was Liz Frank, and it's still the term for that type of break. Mm -hmm. And so the French medicine uh, and influence still uh, it has had long-lasting contribution. Mm -hmm. and he, another example, he pulls in this <coughs> system called the Shap Telegraph, which is it's essentially a land semaphore system, and that enables him to communicate fairly quickly, as long as the weather's clear, across hundreds of miles. There are records of him sending Shap Telegraph messages from... Uh, Paris to Italy, and even further, uh, and and in a few hours. Yeah, it's relatively yeah. It's yeah, as opposed to the you know the week it might take for dispatch riders. So so all of this is feeding into Napoleon. He didn't invent most of it, but he's the one who clears the way for it and enables the right people. Again, early in his career, we'll talk about how that changes later. We don't need to talk about that part. We just stop at eighteen oh five. So this is a fascinating portrait you're putting together, gentlemen. The idea of um, Napoleon recognizing the importance of all these elements, law, you're talking about talent management, training, medicine, communications, um, all of these things that go into building France into the power it becomes. But it's not typically what we think about when we talk about great generals, where we think about tactics and, and these kind of glorious victories. That, that seems to be the one missing component so far. Could you comment a little bit on what do you think Napoleon's great victories were when you look at him <laughs> using this whole system that he he, as you say, he didn't invent all these things, but he, he coalesces all of them and puts them into the system that is so enormously effective. Where were the places where you think that this is, is borne out most clearly? Well, I think we certainly teed up 1805 campaign in Owen Wasterlitz with, with, with the channel. Um, but the fact, and, and if the interesting piece I always find of the 1805 campaign, if you look at all the building, all the road networks and the canals, everything that Napoleon has done between... 1801 and 1804 has been to improve the flow of people in the army from Paris up to the coast. And yet, when he actually goes to war, it's from the coast all the way down to the Black Forest, into southern Germany, uh, into Ulm. Um, and, and you see that French system. You see the corps fighting disperse. You see the cavalry doing the matador's cape, if you will, keeping the attention of Mac at, at Ulm. Um, and so that first victory against the, the Austrians, who are trying to reform, who are trying to, they have fought, they have fought the French uh, and Napoleon numerous times already. They're trying to figure out what has made them good. Uh, Mack and some Austrian reformers are looking at it and saying, well, it's, it's this lack of this huge supply train. It is moving rapidly. Um, and so he's trying to replicate that in Bavaria, um, in, in southern Germany. Unfortunately, he hasn't gotten the key portions of you have to do something with it. So he gets fixated on the cavalry demonstration in the Black Forest while the corps are moving dispersed um, independently and coming around behind and trapping him against the Danube at Ulm. And then the campaign from there uh, in terrible weather as it starts getting into uh, September, October uh, and early November uh, to, take off, to take Vienna um, to fight the uh, Russians and uh, and then get to Brun and Austerlitz, um, all of that, and going back to to Abel's comment about operational art, 
Um, that portion of the campaign is really, in my mind, uh, the French army fighting an operational art. It's not a battle. It's a series of battles over over time and space um, for a particular piece. Um, but it really shows the 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 potential um, that that army has done. You know, the French army in that time period is doing about 21 miles a day on the road. Um, and the Russian army, as it enters Austrian territory, which is where the good roads start, is averaging 11 miles a day. So they're almost doing twice as many miles a day. So the speed, and with a Napoleon and a staff, and the ability to see the battlefield, understand where these army, these other your opponents are, and then react more quickly, being able to move almost twice as, as rapidly uh, gives them a huge advantage uh, for it. it, allows them to dictate much, much of that uh, campaign. Yeah, and the 1805 campaign is, is in many ways Napoleon's apotheosis as the god of war. Um, and, and you see all of these elements, right? So it's hard to argue with a campaign like the Ulm campaign, which culminates really without a major battle. There's a few smaller battles in there, Elchichen most notably. Um, but Napoleon manages to bag most of the Austrian army without a fight. Um, and, and that's exactly what Mark is talking about. You've got this, this force on the north French coast the Austrians assume they have all the time in the world. They do exactly what Napoleon likes to do. They advance to force the enemy to make decisions. And then Napoleon sweeps down with all these dispersed corps, not to Mac at Ulm, but around Mac. And this is, he's turning the operational or even strategic level flank. And then he draws in the forces, isolates the Austrian forces. They're often called corps, but then they're not technically. Uh, isolates the, isol the the ones that are by themselves and bags them, and then pushes Mac back into Ulm. And th there's almost an inevitability to it. I mean, of course, it didn't seem that way at the time, but if you look at how it played out, it's almost inevitable that Napoleon would have arrived at the point of Mac having to surrender uh, in in the fall of 1805. And then, of course, that's followed by his great operational tactical level victory at Austerlitz. Uh, the, the one battle of Napoleon's that he kept the name for himself. He didn't award it to a marshal. Mm. Uh, I think Lon probably deserved it. Um, so Napoleon is able to see as soon as the Austrians surrender at Ulm, there will be a fight with the Russians in the vicinity of Vienna. So he swarms up the Danube to Vienna. Um, Beethoven furiously scratches out the dedication to the Third Symphony. And then the, the Russians retreat north of Vienna, but you know we're still in the vicinity when we fight Austerlitz. And Napoleon realizes Alexander, the Tsar of Russia, is there. He's going to make decisions. He's going to be nervous. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's young. So Napoleon realizes that he can cede the high ground, the Pratzen Heights at Austerlitz, and leave both of his flanks exposed. You know, this is, for, for people more familiar with American history, this is, this is Lee at Chancellorsville take the book, light it on fire, do everything wrong, leave your flanks in the air, cede the high ground, cede the initiative. But what he knew that his opponents didn't was that Davout's corps was marching up from Vienna. And if you look at the way he planned the campaign, the way I explain it to my students is he nests the three levels of war. His strategic plan depends on the operational knowledge, operational level knowledge that Davout is marching up with the Third Corps. And even though his flank on the right looks exposed, Davout's going to fill that spot. And when the tactical fight starts, guess who shows up right when he needs to? Davout's Third Corps. And, it's, and when you say it shows up, um, and, and, and the fact that it's moving in there, 
they do 76 miles in 48 hours, which is an astounding road march. And then fight. And then fight all day. They come directly off the road march yep. and, and go into it. And uh, uh, that's astounding because no other army can do that sort of movement and go right into the fight. And mm -hmm. so while they might know Davu's there, maybe moving, it's in their mind, their estimation, days before he could get there. Right, and it's so what we see there is both the man and the system. You need the system, you need Davu, you need his men. Uh, he also had brilliant divisional commanders, sometimes called the Immortal Three, uh, one of whose body was just repatriated. Um, but you also need Napoleon to see all this stuff. And this is what the French mean when they talk about coup d'oeil. Uh, here at, at CGSC, we have a, a division of simulation education, and they do a lot with simulations and war games. Um, and one of the war games they run is called Napoleon 1807, or 1806, I guess is the technical title. And it's got the, the um, campaigns against the Russians after Yen and Auerstedt. And one of the things that's interesting to watch students do with that is, if they get the layout of forces a few days before Eilau, Napoleon's forces are scattered all over the map in Poland, it's the region of Poland. And it's, it's hard for somebody who is not Napoleon to bring those forces together for a culminating battle. Now, he didn't win Eilau, but the point is he was able to see where the point of effort should be weeks before the battle happened. And, and to contemporaries, this looked like magic. It looked like he could see a map and he could understand where the forces needed to be in time and space at any given point and then direct them there in this machine that he had built. So, so you have to have the leadership as well. You have to have that vision to across time and space to put the forces where they need to be and then you let them succeed. And, and you need both of those elements. And that's why Napoleon, uh, you know, axiomatically, um, Wellington referred to him as being worth 40,000 men on a battlefield because you needed that. You needed that all the way up to the operational and strategic levels. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't much care about tactics. You know, he wasn't telling his, his men how to fire their muskets or how to maneuver a, a brigade. So senior officers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's one of the many mistakes that people make, along with the technological one we talked about earlier, is to assume that Napoleon was, was worried about the granular details of his army. He wasn't. He was concerned with what we would now recognize as the upper level of tactics at the time was operational warfare, operations, and strategy. And he had competent men who served in the ranks below who could deal with that stuff. What's interesting, when you said about the, he's not worried about the granular details, he's not of the fighting Yet he is worried about granular details. He has this amazing eye for details. Um, every month, the depots and, uh, and fortresses around France would send in a monthly report. And he would notice discrepancies, errors. You know, you said you had 40,000 biscuits. You got received 20,000 more, but you only have you know 30,000. What happened to the rest? And he would notice that without taking notes, without doing that. So he has the granular detail on stuff, but he doesn't micromanage. He doesn't push that down to a tactical level. He brings this, uh, the places there, and going back to his his uh, his system. You know, whether he's on campaign or whether he was at um, um, at peace in in, in Paris, um, he has this system. Where he only sleeps about four hours, so about midnight. Gets up or, or gets up about four a.m. He gets those first reports. He sorts through them. 
which ones he's going to answer, which ones he's not. Um, then he bathes, um, uh, may take another nap, allowing his staff to put those, stuff, uh, those things together. But his entire day is, is arranged on the information coming in. Um, one of the stories I always like is how he organizes his libraries. Because of as many um, palaces, chateaus he has, the library is exactly the same. The same shelf, the same books, the same order. And the imperial librarian is making sure they're all there. So he could start a book at one uh, palace, go to the next palace, pick up the same book at the same shelf, and continue reading. Um, for his Berliner, his carriage, he had a special traveling library that when he was on campaign, he would have it with books on that region, but they would be specially printed with a smaller font with very, very small margins and on thinner paper so you could have more books there. And the story is always that he, um, whether if he was in one of his, uh, his chateaus and he's reading a book and he doesn't like it, he would just toss it into the fireplace. Um, when he's traveling cross country and he picks that book out of his library he doesn't like, he just tosses it out the window um, and uh, just gets rid of it. But this constant study before the campaign, so when he's understanding how he can move the time and space neither the the image I always like is the the there's there's drawings of him kneeling on a map in the middle of the night with a bare dividers and he's figuring out where the cores are going to go and he's reading that off to Bertier who's taking notes and then Bertier is going off to his portion of the, the headquarters where he cannot be interrupted even by Napoleon and he is then writing the orders and instructions that are going to go out to the core level um, to be able to do it but it's because Napoleon's got that knowledge prior has put the hard effort in his is is understanding the time and space that he can make those type of, of seeming miraculous uh, concentrations and movements that other generals just can't understand. Yeah, and he has an insatiable appetite for work, as Mark pointed <laughs> out. Um, he he also he he's a genius for for operational and strategic level warfare, but he's also an administrative genius, and, and we see that with the the framing of the Code Napoleon. Uh, we see that with the running of the army. And, and when you put those two together, and when you make that person both the head of state and the head of the military, that's an incredibly powerful weapon. You don't have to send back for orders. You don't have, you know, an insane king who can't command the military, or a bunch of old generals who don't know any better, or a czar who shows up in the middle of the battle and changes things. You have a genius at pretty much every level who is running this machine. We see all that in 1805. Uh, the other place we see that is in the first campaign in 1796, uh, where he takes a, a stalled front, a, a secondary or even tertiary front, and within two weeks he's defeated one of the enemies and driven the other one back most of the way out of Italy. And that's where you really see this nascent system where you see Napoleon working on his operational art and then he turns into a diplomat. He starts making settlements with all these little Italian states. He starts drawing their wealth back to France, uh, for which a lot of people criticize him. Uh, he also knows which subordinate generals to put where. I realize in Messina a lot. So when Napoleon is off crushing the Austrians and Russians, it's Messina down south actually dealing with the main Austrian effort in Italy. Uh, pretty handily, too, with about half the, the force size. Um, and I'll offer you a third one. You know, Napoleon had a lot of successes in battles, but in, in terms of a campaign success, his invasion of Spain 
1808. Uh, the French are in trouble. The puppet king's been driven out. Uh, a French unit has surrendered for the first time on a battlefield since Napoleon took power. Napoleon arrives on the Spanish frontier, and within a couple of months, he has destroyed essentially every Spanish field formation, as well as the Anglo-Portuguese army, along with killing its commander. Uh, in a space that is resource poor, infrastructure poor, and huge. Spain is a huge place with a lot of difficult terrain, but Napoleon figured it out very quickly. Um, we don't tend to think of Spain as a success, but that campaign certainly was. So it's interesting, Professor Abel, you mentioned the word, you dropped the word genius, which you often hear in regards to Napoleon, and, um, and you've, you've both sketched this very impressive system that he's uh, able to put to use and um, making the right choices at the right kind of levels of war. That begs the question, of course, that how is it that Napoleon seemingly failed so spectacularly later in his career. Most people know the word Waterloo. Uh, most people can talk about the invasion of Russia as one of those things you're simply not supposed to do, and he does it anyway. Uh, if Napoleon is firing on all cylinders here, if he's unmatchable in many ways, how is it that in his later career, his enemies are able to counter and even best him? Well, it's interesting that um, I think Napoleonic scholars tend to have this game where they, 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 they argue about when does Napoleon's foreign policy kind of go off the tracks. Uh, and I think usually about 1807 and tills it is where you could start to say, because before that it was securing the natural borders of France, the Rhine River, creating a series of allied states uh, from the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the German uh, states. Um, after 1807, his diplomacy becomes um, at the point of the bayonet. You beat the enemy and then you dictate terms. Um, and that does not allow for um, the, any kind of lasting uh, peace. France has become too powerful, too dominant in this great power uh, system. And you kind of force the other countries to go into coalitions to try to confront you. The other aspect is you keep beating them and they keep learning. Um, and you see that in particular in 1809 with the Austrians. Um, uh, it, it, uh, uh, Radisson cycle, uh, and then uh, they, they have gotten better. Um, they are being able to take some aspects of that French revolutionary changes in military we've talked about um, and put them into place. Um, you start to get the school systems, the, the uh, general staffs uh, being built, and those things take that dominance of the French military and make it, they're still the best, but it's now getting closer to parity. And so um, the overstretching of those political objectives uh, with the other armies becoming closer in parity uh, really limits what you can do. So you're saying, in, in other words, a combination of some, some foreign policy errors and then adaptive enemies who are figuring out what Napoleon's trying to, right. to roll at them. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good kind of bifurcation of his problem. Um, and, and to elaborate a bit on both of those, Napoleon sees himself as an equal when he first rises to power. Other, other states don't necessarily see him that way, but they have to accept him as an equal. He comes to power in a balance of power system. It's a zero-sum game. Everybody knows the game. But he doesn't stick to that game. And he keeps taking more and more and more. He imbalances the, the kind of the circle of nations. And they used all this language at the time. They used all this language in the 18th century. They're, they're not unaware of things like collective security. He is simply too powerful and too rapacious 
for the other states, especially Britain, to allow to continue to exist. Now, Britain's problem, of course, is that it can only act through other people in Europe. Um, so that's part of the problem, and that, that kind of rapaciousness grows as he ages. Um, the other problem is his system is predicated on defeating the enemy quickly. As Mark pointed out, you know, his armies march twice as fast as his enemies. He must win the battle, which then concludes the campaign, which is then followed by a treaty. So he telescopes all of the layers of war together into one. You find your strategic victory on a battlefield, which is a model that lots of people like to follow, um, including to the present. His enemies figure out how to break that cycle, how to decouple tactical victory from operational and strategic victory. The Spanish do it through the Guerrilla, the little war. Um, not just that, hybrid war, right? Conventional forces next to unconventional. The Russians do it by trading space for time. Um, according to Alex Mikabritsa, the great scholar of Russia, accidentally, they didn't mean to do that, but it worked. Swarming Cossacks, deny him supply, move him into territory where he can't move quickly. He has no supply. Um, and the Austrians and Prussians and eventually all of the forces do it through symmetry. It's easy to surround and defeat a brigade-sized formation in 1805. It's a lot harder to surround and defeat quickly a corps-sized formation. And no matter how incompetent the soldiers, NCOs, officers, and general officers are, a corps is harder to kill. On top of that, Napoleon's being attrited. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of his commanders are dying. A couple of them do, most notably Lon. Um, but he has to leave men in Spain. He has to leave men in garrisons. Uh, he kind of notoriously left Davu and Hamburg for, the, for basically the entire Sixth Coalition War. Uh, and so he doesn't have his best commanders anymore. You know, in 1805, one of Napoleon's brigade commanders might be the best division corps or even army commander in some of the, his enemy's forces. That's not true by 1809, and certainly not by 1813. Um, and then finally, I'll throw in another element, which is Napoleon himself. Uh, Napoleon, you know, notoriously might have said that a general has 10 good years for war, which means his 10 years expired in 1806, well, which coincides more or less with his last great, you know, resounding victories. Um, but I think more fundamentally, you know, think of Napoleon like a daycare worker. When the daycare worker starts working at the daycare, you know, they're friendly. They, they, they want children to have a good play space and learn and all of the things that a good daycare worker should do. And, you know, when a kid gets out of line, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll quietly pull them aside and give them a nice talk about how they should behave and say, well, don't do it again. But the 300th time that child misbehaves, that daycare worker is going to lose their patience. And, and that's, that's the way I like to picture Napoleon. He's sitting in Paris, he's getting older, you know, after 1807, and there's just all these children. And I don't think it's unfair to say that's kind of the way he looked at his, you know, fellow crowned heads. You know, you've got Tsar Alexander, you've got the old uh, former emperor, now Austrian emperor, you've got, you know, whoever's the king of Prussia, nobody really cares, including a lot of the Prussians. Um, you've got whatever the mess is in Spain, you've got an ins literally insane king in, in Britain. And Napoleon looks at them and sees, you know, these people are not my equal, but they won't behave. And he can't force them to behave anymore, particularly the Russians. You know, the Russians, they, they're always good for a fight against Napoleon. And, and pretty much with the exception of 1809, they're ready to fight him when somebody else is ready to fight him. So he gets increasingly frustrated. And the more frustrated somebody gets, the more mistakes they make. 
And so he starts making mistakes. He makes mistakes in war. He makes mistakes with, with um, kind of diplomatic issues, as Mark mentioned. You know, he starts dictating peace terms instead of treating his his former opponents like equals. Um, uh, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire is dismantled, so it's kind of hard to say he's not a a big agent of change. Um, he, he, he destroys and reconstitutes states. Uh, he tries to pull Third Germany away from the Prussian and Austrian orbit. Uh, he also makes mistakes at home. Uh, one of his great failings was he relied too much on his family. Um, and with the exception of his Republican brother, um, Lucian, who essentially disowned him for making himself a monarch, his brothers are not particularly competent. Um, you know, Joseph is competent at certain things, but he's just, he doesn't have the, the mentality to run a country. But Napoleon starts putting his relatives on thrones. He starts giving them thrones that none of them know how to manage. I think it's fair to say that none of Napoleon's relatives, except perhaps one of his sisters, managed the state they were given well. Um, you can argue that Joseph didn't really have a chance, but no matter. He never gets it through his head that these people are not good at what they do. And it probably doesn't help that he's got that Italian tradition of helping your family. He's got his Italian mother, Letitia, who's, who is looming over him saying, you know, and I don't mean that in a Freudian sense, like the way some authors write about it. It's just, she's a very powerful influence on him. And every time there's a meeting, it's just him dealing with these family members who all want stuff. Um, and there was a great, um, there's a great bicentenary, uh, I think it was Franco-Italian miniseries about Napoleon mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in 1989. It was, you know, it, was, it wasn't amazing, but the, the scene where Napoleon is locked in the room with his family, and you just get this sense of exasperation. <laughs> and that's the way he looked at Europe. It's these mm -hmm. children who won't behave. They won't fall in line and accept the revolution as he sees it, the Enlightenment. Yeah, but much of that is because of foreign policy decisions. When you take a third of the lands from Prussia, when you reconstitute the Duchy of Warsaw, um, you know, it's a direct threat to Russia. It's a, it's a harbors resentment to Prussia. You know, when you start going after 1807 from a great powers being equal to a dominance of France, um, and we tend to think of Britain, Britain tends to Afterwards, talk about, oh, we were the great bulwarks against uh, Napoleon, and, and kind of forget that the Continental System was working. Um, you know, by 1812, uh, they were in uh, bad uh, economic uh, problems, and it was only because they basically undercut their Spanish ally and started trading with Central and South America and took away the money that they needed for uh, their own country that they were able to survive. Um, but I guess, again, I think we overstate sometimes, you know, Napoleon trusts his family because he doesn't trust the other people. Um, and so he relies on them. And I, mm -hmm. I agree, they are not mm -hmm. uh, necessarily the most competent ones to, to be able to do it. Well, you see the same problem in the, the War of the Sixth Coalition, right? So he's retreating from Russia. It's a myth that his army was destroyed there. Um, a lot of it was reconstituted later. Um, so he's fighting and he's winning fights, he's winning battles. You know, he's winning Lutzen, Bautzen, and Dresden to the point where the, the Allies almost throw in the towel in late 1813. They're ready for a peace if Napoleon will just They're accept stunned. it. They're stunned. Yeah. They're absolutely stunned by midsummer. Right, but then they realize, hey, yes, Napoleon is here, but look who's elsewhere. You know, you've got, it's not his first rank anymore. It's not Messina and Davu and Lon commanding corps. It's Ney. It's McDonald, it's Sancier, it's those people. It's the people who just 
they're not cut out for it. And and Napoleon, as as I mentioned earlier, he's very good at talent identification early in his career. That seems to wane significantly later. And he puts a lot of trust in someone like a Ney, who demonstrably does not deserve it. Uh, my my major professor, Mike Legere, would say in class, show me a battle of Napoleon and I'll show you Ney messing up. But Ney gets all these great commands culminating in Waterloo where he, you know, I don't think Napoleon could have won Waterloo, but but Ney doesn't there, help. I think there's also a piece, not going back to the 10 years, a good general, but there is a physical decline and whether it is stomach cancer starting to to already bother him um, when you look at him uh, portraits painted 1810 1811 to something painted 1813 he in that two to three year period is a he has suddenly become a portly middle-aged man less activity uh, supposedly with hemorrhoids so he can't ride on horses for long periods of time so he doesn't have the ability to to see on the battlefield, there are some physical ailments that by 1813 are starting to affect um, his ability. Which makes sense if you think about how dependent his system was on him, mm -hmm. right? And his opponents recognize this, and particularly the Prussians look at this and say, this genius idea is great, but when the genius stops being a genius, what do you do? And then, of course, later they invent the Prussian-German staff system to make up for that. Well, what this has revolved around a lot of is the role of Napoleon himself and he is fading he is making mistakes he's overextending himself he's um, too dependent on his family he's being pressured by his mother these sorts of things but that's all very uh, Bonaparte centric right uh, your your metaphor of the daycare is interesting I as a parent sometimes your children end up being more than a match for you and you don't real realize it uh, what about his adversaries we like to say here in DMH the enemy always gets a vote uh, was there anyone who you feel is particularly distinguished when fighting against Napoleon someone who absent all of Napoleon's poor choices in the run-up perhaps just simply had the better of Napoleon when it came to the battlefield in his later years. I'm not sure the better. I, I think closer to parity is, is the thing. I mean, the, the famous quote that Napoleon has at Grosgorshin in May, where he sees the Prussians for the first time um, since 1807, and his comment, the beasts have learned something. It's mm -hmm. still dismissive of the Prussians, the beast, but he acknowledges they've learned something. Um, the Russian soldier, um, has uh, great respect. Um, when you look at Wellington um, and the British Army, uh, the Anglo-British Army, or the Anglo-Portuguese Army um, in Spain, um, they have gotten much, much better, but it's taken, again, years to build. Um, and are they as good as Napoleon and the French Army? No, but they're much better. And so it doesn't allow for the mistakes uh, to be capitalized upon. It doesn't allow for that quick decision like John was talking about. It's, you know, it's much more of a campaign. It's longer time periods, which Napoleon and his system is really looking at quick, decisive ends. And he can't get that anymore because they've improved. And I think the, the army that's probably improved the most has been the Austrian army um, with their changes. And they have been beat so many times. They keep improving. Um, and, and working on it. So, I mean, there is um, a number of much more capable armies that are fighting against Napoleon by 1813. Yeah, and I, I think you ask an excellent question because it gets <coughs> us at a mindset that we need to understand in, in all of history, but it, it, this works across fiction, it works in, in military history. The assumption we have that Napoleon rises and a rival rises to challenge him and the rival wins. With Napoleon, there is no rival. Even 
the generals who come closest to looking like him, whether that's a Wellington or a Blucher, uh, or even his, you know, erstwhile Marshal Bernadotte, they know they're not close to being his equal, and they get that. It's not a one-to-one, force-on-force, you know, as Clausewitz would say, it's not a duel. It's not, it's not them punching each other in the face until one of them gives up, or a wrestling match where one of them pins the other. It, you know, even Wellesley, before he's Wellington in Spain, when a lesser French general shows up with an army, Wellesley runs away. He does that three times. He runs all the way back to Portugal. The same thing happens in the 1813 campaign. After they realize Napoleon's still good, they say the way to beat him is not to fight him one-on-one. And, and even during the Waterloo campaign, the Waterloo campaign is, is a bad study for a lot of reasons because it's mm-hmm. not typical. Napoleon doesn't have his full resources. Berthier's dead. Clark is gone. Um, Davout's not there. Yeah, in Paris. Davout's in Paris. He chews up the Prussians later in Paris. Um, and, and nobody's planning it. it just People just kind of march, and then battles happen, and then more battles happen, and then the campaign's over. Well, Napoleon had a plan. Well, Napoleon and he, had a plan. he is trying to separate the Prussian yeah. army and the Anglo-British army, or the, the, the Dutch-British army. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the Allies didn't have much of a plan. No, They're the allies, allies don't. And, right. And that's the thing is, I think he could have won at Waterloo, but so what? Right. Because there were so many Allied armies coming. Yeah, pe- uh, people f- tend to forget the what if about Waterloo. Yes, Napoleon could have defeated both the Prussian and the British army. There's an army of 300,000 Austrians and Russians facing a French army of 15,000 men. So that's Organizing 15,000. Yes, under Suchet. One of his few good people he developed. Uh, but yeah, and... and his opponents, uh, like I said, it's not—they're not seeing themselves as 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 building parity, as being his equal. All they have to do is get up to a level where Napoleon can't defeat them quickly, and they know. Um, you know, one of the things I jokingly like to say to my students is the Allies can count. They can look at the number of people and resources Napoleon has. They look at their own resources and say, "Well, all we have to do is a trip. and that's basically how he loses. Uh, and in 1814, again, 1815 is is its own beast in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they recognize from the beginning they cannot be him, nor should they try to be him. So to rep, work our way towards a conclusion here, um, Napoleon's obviously been one of these captivating figures for around two centuries. People have been studying a lot of the things that you gentlemen have been talking about for quite some time, uh, the ins and outs of it. Um, more recently, what have we been learning about Napoleon in the last 10, 20, 30 years? Where are the trends out there? Uh, we've, we've obviously know about Austerlitz, the great victories. We know a lot about his governmental changes and these sorts of things. Uh, what is going on in Napoleonic studies today to get further into uh, the story of this famous general? Well, I think one of the big pieces is the study of the French state. The non, just the typical civil servants and how it functioned and how Napoleon dealt with it, um, which is one of the pieces that really hadn't been studied before. And looking at that Kind of the solid state, if you will, of just operations and how do you influence it and what you can and can't do with the bureaucracy is one of the big pieces uh, that's going in there. Um, you know, from the military perspectives, I mean, we study here um, Clausewitz and Jomini both as uh, military theorists whose theories then build the doctrinal thoughts that are going to go into our uh, field manuals, like 3 uh, operations. Um, since they are all looking at Napoleonic campaigns um, and, and trying to figure 
out what went on for that 25 years. Um, our own current doctrine has so much of Napoleon's, not necessarily his ideas, but his, um, his example embedded into it that we don't um, think about it or really realize it anymore in many ways. Yeah, I think a lot of the the kind of new, and I'm doing air quotes because new in this field means 30 or 40 years, um, European historiography tends to move slower than than other fields. Uh, But a lot of it is the same kinds of fields you see in other other areas, right? So there's studies now looking at, at aspects like gender. There's been a lot of memory studies that I've seen over the last 10 years or so. Um, I can't believe we both haven't thought about it. Because when you said European studies, I mean, one of the biggest probably things is the World War uh, piece in Alexander Mikabritsa's book looking at Mm -hmm. um, the Napoleonic and the French Revolutionary effect on the entire world. And Mm -hmm. that this this 25-year period is a world war. Yeah, Um, Charles Esdale did a lot of that too. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and did kind of... To, to not use too much um, jargon, but decentering Napoleon, yeah. uh, looking at this as a phenomenon over time and space, and seeing how, for example, uh, the the Brazilian market reacted to the changes brought by the revolution and then Napoleon, right? Things like that, uh, or seeing how these ideas spread through the Spanish colonial world and began to result in many of the independence movements. Although we have to be careful not to make that too deterministic. Um, Which is interesting, and a lot of British officers after the war, as they downsize their army, then go off and become mm-hmm. basically mercenaries in South America, um, bringing the directly their experiences there to a South American piece of... Yeah, and a lot of French people ended up in America. Um, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the other things that's happened is this field of borderlands history and American historiography, looking at, you know, as the border moves west... Who's there? How do they look? How do they think about that space? And the French actually play a role there. There's the the vine and olive colony in Alabama. Um, there's the Champ de Seal colony that's planted in Texas that the Spanish then have to go conquer. It's kind of the last Napoleonic battle. Um, there, Jonas, Joseph Bonaparte lived in New Jersey for years um, and was considered kind of the elder statesman of of the Northeast in America for a long time. Much of the range area at Fort Drum is actually former Bonaparte land that uh, Joseph had an estate up there for his summer retreat. Yeah, so looking at the international aspects, looking at kind of um, case studies, there's been a lot of kind of transnational and transatlantic history over the last few uh, decades. Like I said, I've seen a lot of memory studies that have begun. Um, Prior to the period and including it, there's a new field called the Military Enlightenment um, that, as far as I can tell, was started by Armstrong Starkey and then Christy Pekikaro, mm-hmm. uh, both excellent books on the period. Yeah. The idea of, you know, Enlightenment scholars for a very long time were kind of anti-war, um, and they thought war didn't fit in the schema of the Enlightenment, but uh, Starkey and Pekikaro pointed out, no, in many ways, war is the Enlightenment. It's very Cartesian. Um, so we're starting to see some of that. Now, the flip side of this is there's a lot to do in Napoleonic studies, right? People keep writing the biography, and people keep writing the campaign history, um, but people need to start doing or redoing some of the, the classic studies, right? So, uh, you know, as Mark can, can confirm, a lot of us still rely on the F. Lorraine Peters series. They're, they're, they're good books. They're very good for the time period. But they were written essentially in 1900. Um, and there's a lot more sources now that yeah. are accessible to English. I mean, there's... You can read, say, again, a lot of the Russian uh, journals and soldiers' um, uh, memoirs. There's just uh, some Polish 
um, soldiers' memoirs and stuff that have been translated in English. So yeah. those, I don't want to say secondary type of, uh, of, of countries, but aspects of this Napoleonic system that we didn't have much of access to before yeah. is more available. There are more archives open now. Um, there, are, there are better records, more available. I, I think the Russian one might be hard to get into, but the rest of them, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's relatively easy now to both travel to a place like Austria and, and Germany, uh, you know, pandemic notwithstanding. Um, but it's a, a lot of the stuff's being digitized, too. Mm -hmm. So we've got a colleague, uh, Rick Schneid, who's, who's talks constantly about, about looking at logistics, mm -hmm. which nobody looks at in these campaigns, and certainly not in English. Um, and I know he's been deep in the Fond d'Ahu, which are, are um, digitized. Um, and, and, you know, something as simple as a campaign history. To my knowledge, there is no single scholarly account of the 1806 campaign in Prussia. There's pieces scattered, there are chapters, but there's no book written just on the 1806 campaign that's in Prussia. A, that seems astounding for right. such a famous figure. Right. It, was, it would be like if, uh, you know, in Civil War historiography, there were no history of the Chattanooga-Chickamauga campaign. It just didn't exist. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I think, you know, young aspiring scholars, um, popular historians, even hobbyists, um, there's a lot to do here from the ground level all the way up. You know, and I mentioned earlier, but we need to stop writing books on Napoleon himself. You know, the biography's been written, uh, the book on Waterloo has been written, <laughs> no matter how much that fascinates the British, and we need to start looking at other stuff. And, you know, there's plenty of space. It's, you know, it's a big tent. A lot of people can live in it. So that's a, a world historical figure in another, another way of maybe saying it. Somebody who had a massive impact around the world, not just through his campaigns, but in the government of France, the effect of France on the broader scene, uh, the officers and the, uh, the countrymen going around and settling in places like New Jersey and going to Brazil. Uh, and so the impact getting wider and moving perhaps away from that uh, Napoleon-centric focus and, and looking at everything else that's going on. That's very interesting. Um, gentlemen, as a final wrap-up question, as we're about up against time here, I would simply ask both of you to, uh, to give your opinion on what do you think Napoleon's place in history is, uh, broad scope. Um, what does he mean to the world today? Well, I'm going to certainly say that uh, obviously the era is named the Napoleonic era. Uh, he is central um, uh, to that era and much of the French Revolution and the lifting of the restrictions of the Ancien Regime and his role is in systematizing and taking and making less uh, violent and extreme much of those contributions of the French Revolution. And so that's a critical piece of the way we we view things in the modern world and the way the modern world standards. So I think essential um, for the, uh, the way we look at the world today. Yeah, he's also the prototypical military genius. We, we, when we think of military genius, we think of someone who looks like Napoleon. Somebody who has the ability, as I mentioned earlier, to see across time and space and find the truth and find what needs to happen. Um, it's a, a, a point religious scholars refer to as the kairos, the, the decision point, um, the point at which things change. Or if you want to dive into the French um, technical terminology, the point d'appui. Um, 
And, and so, you know, even in a world where we don't really fight wars like Napoleon did, we don't just march armies out and find enemies and kind of, you know, decide where to fight a battle and then go have a treaty. Uh, we live in a far more complex world, a world of multi-domain operations, of, of you know, kind of massed intentions and, and gray zones. Um, but even still, we, th we tend to think of Napoleon as the genius. And, and as Mark has been pointing out, not just a military genius, an administrative genius. Um, and I think that that's hugely important, right? And, and we also need to understand that he's a problematic figure. You know, he's a totalitarian. I would go so far as to call him a proto-fascist, not in his ideology per se, but in his need for control. Uh, he's, he is a person who um, worked actively against the rights of slaves, people of color, of women, um, in, in rolling back some of the freedoms given by the revolution. You know, he infamously reinstituted slavery. He infamously took away women's rights. Um, and not just in France, in, in other places, too. Uh, he was a personally a problematic figure in a lot of ways. You know, people have compared him to Stalin. They've compared him to Hitler. Um, I think those killed are, people. Right. I think those are kind of specious comparisons, but as, as Mark is kind of jokingly saying, we also need to not forget Napoleon was largely responsible for the deaths of probably four million people. Um, if Napoleon does not exist, many fewer of those people die. Um, and this is, this is the core kind of overarching problem that Napoleonic studies have always dealt with and military history in general. You know, you have to be able to study war without glorifying it. Um, but that means you have to study it. And a lot of people go too far the other direction. You know, in France, they have this constant debate about Napoleon. Um, a lot of it has to do with their internal politics. But, but you know, is he a figure of the, of the revolution? Is, the, is he the apotheosis and the endpoint of the revolution? Or is he the person who betrayed it? Is he the totalitarian who, who uh, kind of savaged the values of the revolution? One example is always the uh, Napoleon shutting down press in Paris, yet when he goes to Vienna and implements the same level of press censorship in Vienna, it actually increases the amount of stuff that can be published because the Ancien Regime had more censorship in there. So it's, it's this odd balancing that you have to kind of compare it to the other other states um, in there. It's it's not to the ideals of the French Revolution, but it's in many ways much much better than everybody else um, that he put they puts in place. Yeah, and Mark makes a good point. You know, historians are always careful to say you have to evaluate people based on the standards of the time, and I think that's true of Napoleon. Although it's fair to point out, people criticized him for these same things at the okay. time. So you know, we're not we're not being anachronistic. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the other issues that I think we deal with in Napoleonic historiography is one of his, the points of his legacies is uh, oddly for a person who is so dynamic and so important across a wide range of fields, often you can tell someone's politics by their opinion of Napoleon. Mm. Because they will portray him as the friend or enemy of what they think should happen. You see this all throughout the historiography, right? So the 19th century French authors, the Republicans, Napoleon is the betrayer. The monarchists, Napoleon is the great man. Um, and you see this continue, right? So you, you, you can see this today, you can see it throughout the studies of Napoleon. And, and in many ways that makes him an ideal foil. Uh, I, I, it's, I don't know if it's true, 
Uh, but it is often said among Napoleonists that Napoleon is the second most written about figure in human history other than Jesus. Um, I would probably add Muhammad in there. Um, so he may be the third most written about figure. But he's one of these Julius Caesar types that just people find anything of interest in him because he had such an impact across such a wide array of, of events and systems within, as Mark pointed out, the Napoleonic era. So here, two centuries after his death, still a dominant and even divisive figure on the world stage today. Yes. I want to thank you both, Professor Jonathan Abel, Professor Mark Urgis, for joining us today on the DMH podcast, and thank you for listening.